Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mixing and mastering engineer Nick Squids Squalante. First of all, according to the State and Future of Music Creation Survey by research company Medea, social media builds your fan base, but it does not monetize them. It's really hard to get them to buy anything. Social does a much better job of building a fan base than streaming platforms even like YouTube and TikTok. The exception is Bandcamp. It's the only platform that's really a major force, and that's because of merch sales. Streaming has taught consumers to be passive listeners, unfortunately. Physical products like vinyl can be a much more social experience as everybody can listen together and Frequently that happens, especially with vinyl albums, where you invite your friends over for a listening party. At its root, music fandom is about identity, and streaming an artist's music makes someone a listener, but listeners only make the jump to become fans when something about the music or its creator resonates with who they are. In fact, 49% of consumers say that the music that they listen to very much reflects who they are. Of those consumers, 58% stream music for free and 53% listen to paid music every month. All this shows that passive listeners can be fans, but it's really difficult to get them to take the next step to buy something from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that my new Musician's AI Handbook is now available. It's packed with information about how AI can help you with new song, lyric, mixing, and mastering ideas, as well as music marketing to help you get your music out to the audience that you deserve. To get your copy, go to bobbyosinski.com forward slash AI handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash AI handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, CDs and DVDs are not quite dead, but they're certainly not growing. But a new round plastic optical disc can store more than a petabyte of data or more than the entire internet transmits in a second. And that's a big deal. In fact, it stores 1.6 million gigabytes. And the reason why it could do that is because it's stored in three dimensions as opposed to two as used by CD and DVD and Blu-ray discs. It's also encoded on 100 layers and can store more than 4,000 times more than a Blu-ray disc and 24 times more than even the most advanced hard disks. There's no name for this disc yet, and it's possible it will be even better before it's officially released as the product can get more layers. Plus, it's said to use more eco-friendly materials than plastic in the final version. It seems like storage formats never seem to die. Just like vinyl records came back and even cassettes are having a new surge in popularity, we may see the DVD come back in another form as well. It will be even better if it doesn't use plastic. My guest this week is mixing and mastering engineer Nick Squids Colante, whose recent immersive mixes include Rescue Me by Dirty Heads, which went to number one on the Billboard Alternative Charts, and Psycho by Asking Alexandra, which also scored a spot at number one on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Charts. He's also done other immersive mixes for artists like Tommy Lee, Papa Roach, and Bad Wolves, just to name a few. Nick began his career working at Electric Lady Studios with seven-time Grammy Award-winning mixer Michael Brower. 
During his time at the studio, Nick worked on records for Bon Jovi, Frank Ocean, Mumford and & Sons, and Nellie King, just to name a few. Since then, Nick has been working with both major label and independent artists, amassing millions of streams on Spotify, Apple Music, and other major streaming platforms. As a result, Nick has worked on records that have charted in the top 10 on iTunes, and even more recently, considered for a Grammy nomination. During the interview, we spoke about his biggest learning moment with the great Michael Brower, his favorite plugins, how he got into immersive mixing, creating memorable moments in a mix, and much more. I spoke with Nick from a studio in Brooklyn. Let's talk a little bit about your background and how you got into the music business and where you are today. Well, the story kind of stems back a bit to, I would say, obviously childhood and growing up in a musical household. And, you know, between my mom and my dad, both like my mom's sense of just like get stuff done and like go your own way because she was a business owner and so like i always looked up to her and then my dad has been a musician his whole life who he was in bands when he was a kid my brother was a musician my sister in theater so like i just couldn't avoid it <laughs> um to put it pretty plainly but um it, it was around the time right before i was heading off to college i was like i don't know what the hell i'm gonna do um i wasn't like a virtuosic player or anything like that. I enjoyed music. I understood like, you know, a little bit of theory here and there, but it really came down to a decision between going to school for video game design and, uh, and music. And I didn't know what in music. I was just like, let's maybe music. And it came down to my best friend just being like, Hey, I'm going to this school. Um, you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'll go to that school too. And then I went for music. So, um, it wasn't till like two years in where I discovered like the audio engineering, um program and then immediately to stem back from like the video game design thing once i sat behind like a desk and i think it was like a an like a d command or something like that i saw the knobs and i was like this is a video game for music (laughs) (laughs) this is what i want to do so i got involved and immediately i had the knack for that and then it came down to like towards the end of i think the junior year and they were like you got to go find an internship with whatever you're thinking of doing so I asked my my professor, who's since passed away, unfortunately, but I asked him, I was like, what are cool studios in New York? Like, what should I look into? He's like, well, there's this, there's Studio A, Studio B, you know, naming a bunch of studios. And then, and then he said, then there's just one studio. Really hard to get an internship at, you know, 90% of the people who try just don't get an answer. And he was talking about Electric Lady Studios. So immediately i'm like i need this like i want this and i and i dove into the history of it and Jimi hendrix and i was like holy crap this is like the place i want to be and i remember i think i emailed them like three times before they got back to me and long story short they gave me an internship i was really like it was tough for me in the beginning interning there this is like fast forward into the internship now out of you know school and stuff because i lived in westchester it was like an hour and a half to get in and get out and like the hours were you know it was a long time you work at a studio you're doing studio stuff especially when you're like bottom of the rung you know the, the quote-unquote mailroom um start but um it was tough and and i you know had like a really just a a, a mind switch in my brain because like i was like maybe this isn't for me and then i said you know what i'm gonna do if i'm going to get someone coffee i'm gonna get the best damn coffee in new york you know, like all, all of my mind and my aspect changed and I really like stepped up. And what's cool about the internship program over there is like 
they notice when you really when you really like step in and step up and and they give you then then all of a sudden i'm like starting to go into sessions and you know i'm not doing much but i'm i'm observing and i'm getting to see a lot more and it's like a really beautiful process and fast forward a year after that internship um i was asked to be michael brower's assistant engineer so that's the uh the background and i worked for him and i assisted on some cool records and and uh yeah and then after that i was like you know still had that kind of mindset of like man these these hours in this studio this is a lot of time and it was funny studio b's like underground so there's no windows and you're looking at my studio now which is also like my windows are like this big (laughs) (laughs) i can't seem to escape that part but um you know i was like 23 years old at this time so now i'm i'm assisting for for michael who's like a legend in and of himself he's obviously every if you don't know his name go do some research because you better learn up because he's like the you know what i mean yeah he's one of the greats and it was a real honor to work to work under him but i had a conversation with him and was like hey man like i don't know if this studio thing or being a studio personnel is for me you know i love the mixing aspect that's where i started to like diverge away from like all the other things and like recording and uh production and just be like mixing is really cool like and the way he did it was with some serious style you know yeah it's all feel for him it's not like i'm sure i mean obviously there's a bunch of technical stuff that you know he's he's super famous for like the brow rising method and all that but it was all vibe with him and it was so cool to just see that um, but I had a conversation with him real down to earth and I said, listen, I don't know if this is for me. I, I got to explore. I'm like 23 years old. You know, uh, I don't know where in the music industry I want to be. Maybe it's like on the road or maybe it's like trying to uh, to do music full time or what, you know. So I left and and I was doing um, just some production recording gigs on the side, but like working on my own terms. And I had like this thought process, which is it's not intended to be self-centered but it's like i'm doing a lot of work for michael which was fantastic and he taught me the world you know but at the same time i had my own ambitions right so i want to be i want to be that mixer at some point in my career i want to be doing this thing i want to have my own studio i want my own space my own rig i want people to come find me and that was really in the early days and i said i have to start from scratch again because i i went you know from college to like working with Bon Jovi, you know, that's, that's a a parabolic shift in, in life and and everything. And I'm just like, this needs to, I need to start from scratch here and work my own way up with my own, you know, tactics and know how and begin to grow a name for myself. So basically I left working with Michael. I started working on my own and years and years of just doing the thing, word of mouth, getting the projects done correctly. And making everybody, you know, I think I said in um, an article I did with Paul, it's like the most important thing is, yes, it's the work and the music, but it's also like you you want people to like have a good time working with you. You know, you don't want to just be the guy who does great mixes and sends off the invoice. You know, it's like this is the there's so much, so much personal stuff that goes into making a song and mixing a song, too. You know, obviously you're in the room with production and, you know, writing and that's very personal, but like mixing is not only making stuff sound good, but it's like, it's listening to to the intent of the song and like feeling where they were going with the emotions, almost putting yourself in that room with them when they were writing it. Like, what were they thinking here? You know, what was this, this moment? What was the intention? But anyway, yes. So fast forward to today, I'm in Brooklyn now. Um, I'm mixing out of my own spot with a uh, 914 Atmos setup. 
and uh, couldn't be happier. <laughs> well, let's just go back to you working with Michael for a second. Sure. He has his own unique way of doing things. I don't know another mixer that operates quite like that. How much of that did you take when you went out on your own? Like knowledge-wise, I'll tell you, the coolest part that I that I like receives from him, and it's the weirdest moment is when I learned it. Because it wasn't like, I wouldn't you know sit next to him and be like, and this is how you do this. And this is how, you know, it was not like that. It was like an observe, take what you can take. But my biggest learning moments were like when I was printing stems and I'm looking at the board and I'm seeing what this EQ is on here. Like, where is he sending this guitar? Is he sending it to a, like a tape delay that's panned to the other side? Like all these little things and these little methods, I was like, wow, this is really cool stuff. So that's where I learned the most. But I'll, I'll say his general thought process to me is like, it's great. You know, it's take groups of things and you know get them together and give them tiny bits of compression and or a lot of compression depending on you know what how how hard you're pushing it for what mix and i took a lot of that into into play but like making my own style was a very big part of it because you know i don't want to just be a a clone or someone who learned and and just took and took and took you know there's there's methods there that i agreed with and also you know to be quite honest didn't agree with and a lot of that stems from me being full blown, like I love digital because, you know, and I'm going to catch a lot of shit for that one, but um, there's just a lot more open opportunity in digital. So for instance, working on an SSL desk, and I know Michael's all in the box now, you know, that was, this is, that was post me working for him. But uh, on the SSL, there were, you know, there was a limited amount of groups that we could send stuff to. So there was like the the B group for like drums and bass and like the guitar group and and vocals and pianos were in a group. And I was like, I don't really, I don't think I want to do that. I want to like, you know, I can split stuff out a bit more, but apply the same methods of like grouping these areas and saying, hey, this stuff feels really good glued together. Like drums and bass feel really good together, you know, and keys and synths feel really good together with strings and you know like stuff like that so you have a bit more nuance when it comes to that and then you can really dial in the types of compression that you're using what tones what what uh colors do you want to introduce to those layers without being you know stuck into this like you only have this many channels so for me i split stuff out a bit more but the methodology of like compressing groups together is a really nice um I still go with that a lot. That's that's built into my template. Very different set of how the the whole thing works. I mean, I'm sure I think a lot of people um or actually he did something with um can't remember the publication, but he went through the whole template and everything and then you can I think buy it now, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Well, do you have a template that you work from or do you have a separate template for different types of music? I have a single template seems to work every damn time and I do um I do everything from like folk to rock to just straight up pop you know um I'm all over the map I did a country record a couple months back did a country album last year like it's it seems to work all the right ways but there are tweaks you make to this template it's not like a set it and forget it type of thing right it's a let's start the game you know on a winning note or let's win the coin toss if you will you know yeah and then uh, move forward from there. So there's there's things that you tweak. Like if it's a softer song, maybe like, you know, I'll have a devil lock on on one of my buses and I'll be like, that I don't need that today. You know, that's not gonna, I don't need that distortion or that, that pump. 
How long does it take you to do a mix? Ah, uh, depends on the producer. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Some stuff is really like, is really just made well. And you can like open a book and just start reading. Other times it's like, oh, well, this book's missing a couple pages. I got to, you know, repair some things. So anywhere between like four to eight hours, I'd say is like a really good mix with obvious breaks in between. And like, you know, and sometimes, you know, I'll do two a day um, usually. So it'll be like a morning break night type of thing. Um, and uh, sometimes the night mix, I'll be like, yeah, I'll hit those vocals in the morning just because, you know, you don't want to overextend yourself. But yeah. But see, there's a difference of working in the box as compared to analog. Because in the analog days, we'd allocate at least a day and a half for each mix. Because, you know, again, you can't break it down and set it up again. You can, but it probably won't sound the same. So now it's different. You, you know, you can recall it in a second. It's not a problem. Yeah, well, that's another big thing. I mean, the, the back to the Brower days, we would print, he would mix on the SSL, right? And we would print the stems that night, regardless of, you know, approval or not, because we would need to have a new song on that desk next day. So we would bring those stems into a hybrid room and we would have a, a process where we would cancel stems out and, you know, basically be able to open up the SSL mix in another smaller format um, with the stems all keyed, like meticulously. You have to check the phase. Like it needs to be basically just null. The only thing that's like allowed to kind of, maybe switch around as like reverbs just because it's reverb and it's going to be different every time you hit it. Um, but it was a really interesting process, but that was really, it was cool because, you know, he was able to go, all right, next day, new SSL mix. And I thought that was like, yeah, smart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but again, sure. File save as to me is like the, the winning ticket there. <laughs> Do you have certain plugins that you always use? Oh yeah. I got to, let me see, let me pull up my stream deck so I could just look at it. I, I'm using Soundflow. I love those guys. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. So I have like my, I think I have four pages of my favorite plugins just sitting here. And um, let's see, what's one that I reach for? All right. I reach for the decapitator almost, every, I mean, every mix. It's not almost, it's every time there's a place for it. That I've been loving. I've been loving um, Neutron Transient Shaper, I think is a, is a, when I got that, that felt like a pivotal moment in my mixing. It's just having the ability to shape transients, but not only shape full transients, but shape different EQ bands of transients. That to me, I was like, whoa, this kick, like, you know, forever you're like, ah, this kick drum's kind of good. Let me try to EQ it and get it to punch more, maybe end up with something boofy. This is like, I have ultimate control of kick drums and I think it's on every kick I, I do. There's some sort of transient shaping going on. And loops and all kinds of stuff because producers are big into loops. How do you change that loop and make it your own instead of something from Splice or, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's for sure. Valhalla, vintage verb, always. <laughs> I love, there's this company called Leapwing Audio. Everything that they make is incredible. They just came out with, I think, a stereo imager called Stage, Stage 1, 2. <laughs> And its width is crazy. So that that I use a lot. OTT is one of my favorites. A little bit of Soothe, Poltex. You know, I can go through a list. Yeah, no, I get the idea. Sure. Cool. All right. So you have a template that you're always working with. I'm just curious the effects that you usually have in that template. Sure. So basically in my template, I have I have a chamber 
the way I do it is like an under the hood type of thing. So I have my master track as a folder. And I remember when they introduced folders, I was like, this is so beautiful. I don't have to look at all the nonsense. Um, and by nonsense, I mean, you know, what's making the car drive real fast. Yeah, yeah. So I have a bunch of folders in there and those are basically my buses. And within buses, there are other folders. So I'll have an, an all effects folder. It'll have uh, delays in there. It'll have reverbs in there. And they'll, then they'll both go to an all effects folder and that'll be like an easy, if I need to cut all effects, I can cut that folder, boom. But I usually have five and five. So it takes up my sends if I have it on a, just a send allocated track. I have a uh, room verb, chamber verb, plate. I have Valhalla and then I have a shimmer of Valhalla. So like those are my reverbs. Delay wise, effects wise, I have, you know, a standard eighth note, quarter note, half note, slap, and then a ping pong just ready to go whenever I need it. Mm -hmm. And they all have different plugins on there. So like, for instance, the eighth note delay, right? If I want something that's going to be like a, a throw, I'll use an Echo Boy Jr. from Sound Toys. But if I want something that's just going to like sit under a mix, but stay present, I'll use an H delay. But if I want something ghostly, that's going to be almost my reverb, I'll use a Valhalla Vintage uh, or Valhalla delay. So a bunch of different options at my fingertips because I don't like to have to go reaching too much. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. How did you get into Atmos? Atmos. All right. So I think it kind of goes back to um, when Apple did that spotlight, right? And and my love for just like technology and like always improving and, and staying up to date with stuff. I heard the spotlight and I'll be honest, when I listened to it in headphones on day one, I was like, hmm, this is this is cool, but I'm not sure if I'm really hearing the synths going over my head like they're saying um, and stuff like that. And regardless, I was like, you know, this is Apple. So this is day one here. I know what Apple did to record stores when iTunes came out. You know, I know that the uh, eighth inch jack on my iPhone is gone and is never coming back. So I'm not one to second guess Apple anymore. When they came out with it, I said, all right, let me look into it. Let me figure it out. And I remember that day, like I put on my Instagram story, I was like, I will be offering this once I can get a rig and get it going. And immediately I dove in and just kind of figured out like, what methods can I use? How can I work this into my workflow of doing stereo mixes and giving basically artists the option to go to Atmos without having to cross the threshold of like, I'm on a label or you're not on a label. Like I wanted to bust open those doors. Um, and obviously fast forward now, you have Pro Tools busting open those doors with the internal renderer, which is great. But in the beginning, like there was very few people that were in the indie space and in the major space, like a hybrid, like kind of like I am, that was offering this stuff. So I got into Atmos after listening to that. And then on and off, just experimenting with it. You know, I did like a, I think my first album that I did was just an ambient album. So it was a lot of space to just like figure out movement and like what's going on with these reverbs. How can I delay a verb so it doesn't like phase cancel and kill me and I'm angry about it later. So I did a record like that and then I went and listened to it in a room. So that was a full blown headphone mix. You know, I wasn't scared about it because I didn't have drums and bass. I didn't have like, a vocal, I didn't know where to put, you know what I mean? Like all that stuff came later. But I, I went and I listened to it at uh, at Flux Studios in New York. They had an Atmos room and uh, they have. I went and listened to it in there. I was like, wow, this is how you're supposed to listen to music. There is no second guessing this for me anymore. Like it will improve, technology is gonna catch up, you know, just cause I don't have 
the cabinets in my headphones doesn't mean that they can't figure out what algorithms or what you know codecs to use to make this really immersive as days go by. So that's when I dove full in and I uh, got a Focal set up. Very cool. So how are you dealing with the differences between what you're hearing from the Apple codec uh, versus the one on Amazon, for instance? It's a good question. And it's, uh, it's always been a head scratcher, but I'll tell you, I cracked the freaking code, I would say about three, four months ago. And it has to do with basically using, you know, everybody talks about different types of beds. So there's the bed and the render, there's object beds, there's like a a hybrid of a bed with some objects to increase your size. So I've landed on using an object bed in certain places. So basically my Atmos template, and my stereo mix template, two different things, two different animals in and of itself. My Atmos template is very simple. It's just an object bed, some verbs, and then uh, my LTC, and, you know, binaural settings, etc. So I figured out positions or coordinates, if you will, since there's like a ton of, you know, pan pan points that translate really well over both. And the thing that was, was the hardest for me was like, why in certain places am I getting such a louder bump, especially like front middle area in Apple versus Amazon? It just feels like it's so far away that, you know, the Dolby codec, you know, cause that's Amazon and title are, are way truer to that than Apple is. Yeah. And I was like, why is this happening? You know, how can I, how can I bypass this? How can I, how can I mask this from Apple and Amazon and basically take away their ability to know where I'm putting something exactly? And that came to me with object beds. So object beds on the, on the outside, you think, yeah, you know, we're going to increase the bed. We're going to, you know, there are verbs in the big bed. And, you know, that's the outside of an object bed. The inside, if you take away you know, the, the obvious stuff of why to use an object bed. The inside is imagine you're panning around inside this bed and your renderer and Apple Music and Dolby only know that you have these speakers, but it can't discern where exactly you're putting that object in those speakers. So it actually can't raise the volume of where you put stuff in different areas because it can't decode it the way it would if it was just a naked object. It can't see it that way. It sees it as a bed. Right. So you're able to put stuff in the front, in the back, in different locations where Apple would push where they won't necessarily push it or where Dolby would lower and it won't get lower. It's a very interesting technique, I would say, to avoid the codex and stripping it and making it different on each. So, and then the other thing is like binaural, binaural settings. I stick to near most of the time. I don't do off ever. And the reason for that in my head is like, if we're doing off, I mean, we're just putting headphones on, you know, yeah. this is what we're doing. And there'll be moments where I'll do mid and far, but it's very rare. You know, it's got to really serve the sound because there's different ways to pull things into a room and make it feel closer, even on headphones, as opposed to just using these binaural settings. Well, let's go back for a second. So you're saying you're using mostly beds then? No, I'm using plenty of objects. Plenty of objects. So like movement-based uh, stuff. I want an object. I want it to be able to decode that and know where it is and, and locate it. But for things that are like staples, like a vocal or, um, or you know, a vocal verb or like, uh, let's say something needs to get upmixed because, you know what, it's, I know that's like a, uh, a uh, what's the word, taboo thing to do in Atmos. But hey, I mean, sometimes like an acoustic guitar that gets upmixed still sounds good. Like, let's not hate on it the whole time. It's, it's techniques, right? Yeah. 
but that'll go to uh, an object bed that'll sit and won't won't be able to be decoded in a certain way because that was a huge another thing. Like if you up mix something to their bed, they treat their beds like they treat objects. It's just a purple layer on the top. You know, it's not not very different than an object that you just can't move them. Um, but they can decode it the same way. So like Apple having that push in the front, you'll feel that way more if you're going to the regular bed as opposed to if you're going to an object bed while it's spread throughout these speakers. But if you were to pan it straight to the front in your object bed, and it was just like a, a stereo file, you're going to get the same decoding that you would in that purple bed. You know, it's all about what's within. It's like when you start to move away from the speaker points when you're mixing within the bed, that's when you get that cool translation that doesn't change much. You mentioned before about upmix, and I, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about. So you're using that a lot, the Halo upmix. Yes, I love those guys. And I will say that it's not always ideal the way that we receive stems if we're not doing the mixes from scratch. So if I'm doing a stereo mix and then I'm going to Atmos with my own stems, I could sit there and say, hey, I'm printing 60 stems. They're all going to be separate. I have complete control over the whole thing. But if I'm mixing a different record that somebody else did in stereo, it's like pulling teeth to try to get drums separated. You know, like maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get cymbals and like a kick and snare in one. <laughs> So things like that with the with an upmixer really, really helps in like get that space without sending it to some verb and like washing it out because that's like the biggest thing and complaint I hear from people is like, ah, it's like too washy. Everything feels like so far away. It's like it doesn't have to. Um, and the guys at Nugent did like a really great job of um, putting together something that's like feels good on speakers, doesn't feel nuts on headphones. You know, it translates really well. And I will say, like, there's a lot of nuance when it comes to making your own, like, presets. Like, I have something that'll basically, you know, let's say for a kick drum. For a long time, I was using uh, two objects for a kick drum, where I really liked the kick drum up front. I like my drums up front. I like to feel them like I would feel a stereo mix and then bring the rest of it in. What I've been doing now recently is, like, I want to make it feel like the listener's sitting on top of that kick drum. I don't want it to feel like it's in front of me. I don't, I, like, I'm trying to take speakers out of the equation, which is, I think, something... Something Dolby said, you know, back in when they were introducing this stuff and all those first YouTube videos comes out, it was like, don't look at your speakers. Don't like imagine they're there. Just try to create this sphere of sound, you know? And to me, that was like, back then I was like, well, what do you mean? Of course, we're going to know where the speakers are and where, you know, we want to locate stuff. And But now more so being in the space for a lot longer, like bringing a kick drum underneath someone or bringing the snare to the chest and having a vocal resonate from like the head as opposed to just straight in front of you you know let's use that center channel people <laughs> you know yeah. so there's a lot of a lot of new things that i've been doing and the up mixer um allows me to basically there's two methods right in in this world of like bringing stuff in there's you can use sends to send stuff to a, the same signal to a speaker and then all of a sudden that that sound starts to come here and here and here because it's the same signal we're not really doing much different but the up mixer will change that signal where you can actually have something in like a side and have something in a rear and it feels like it's still attached to that speaker it still feels wide so what an up mixer is to me it's like a tool to spread whereas sends are a tool to bring into a room to send to individual speakers yeah it makes a lot of sense one of the things that i've noticed in listening to a lot of mixes a lot of atmos mixes was that it lends itself to certain types of music Yes. Rather than others. I think your approach 
would work better on some of those mixes that I feel don't work, that the stereo is better. Without hearing what you've done, but yet just you talking about it, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense. That that should work. Right. So so Amos, yes. First off, I agree with you 100%. Some songs just like scream, put me in Amos, spread me out, like make my sense swirl around your head and, yeah. and the, the rain fall, <laughs> you know, like if you have those kinds of effects. But I've done a lot of rock records too. And Rocky, for instance, is not necessarily one of those ones where you're like, yeah, this needs Atmos. Yeah, like, right. yeah, you know, it does, but it doesn't. But at the same time, there are ways to get it to feel really cool in headphones. And this come, this basically breaks down my philosophy of moments. And I'll start there. It's like, goes back to when I heard Apple on headphones for the first time. I said, yeah, I really don't know if I feel that synth going over my head. I really don't know if I feel this big difference. Sometimes it just sounds like enhanced stereo, if you're lucky. But if that's the case and you don't have the elements to really make an Atmos mix what it can be fully, my thing is you have to make moments. And I think moments are what's going to make this format change um, the way people look at it in a big way. And for me, it's like pick three to five moments in an Atmos mix that are going to make that listener say, holy shit, what was that behind me? Or did that just spin around my head? Something that you cannot do in stereo. It doesn't yeah. have to be a major part, but it has to be a moment. You know, so for me on, on rock records, a lot of the times what I'll do is, man, boy, do guitarists love to slide. When I have a slide, I'm putting on a separate track, I'm getting an object, and I'm doing a spin, and I'm sliding it around your head so you can feel that, and then boom, right in the front. So moments like that throughout records really change the game. Or is there a moment where you can take a, a backing vocal and put it in the back left and then the back right real quick and then push it back forward? Because there's dynamics in this too that you don't have access to in stereo. And it's not volume dynamics, it's it's location. It's not just left, right, it's back forward. You know, it's how do you like seesaw stuff and keep that momentum going and that movement. And it's all about groove and vibe and rhythm with that. But in headphones, you can do similar stuff with motion. And obviously motion back to front is harder to localize with your brain in headphones right now. Um, but left, right is pretty easy. And especially if you can follow something from your right ear to your left, whether it's going in front of you or behind you, your brain will localize that better as opposed to if you're just going like that. So moments are a big thing for me. And then you can find ways to do that with with rock records or folk records. And it doesn't have to be this big moving spaceship of a, of a mix. It just needs to feel like a, a space. It's like, yeah, you know, it, it put yourself in the music as opposed to just on on the ear type thing. Have you done anything in Sony 360? I haven't. I'm a I'm a I'm an Atmos loyalist as of today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say I wouldn't like love to get into it, but for now there's just so much exploration in in Dolby Atmos world that like I don't want to spread myself too thin. Sure. You know, as is figuring out the different formats and right now it's like tough enough to juggle the amount of stereo mixes and then Atmos mixes at the same time. Because I'm one guy. You know, I don't I don't have a manager. I'm not like working with people. I've just been able to get to this place in time just by doing great mixes and having, you know, great artists and great people in general, just like enjoying the work and uh, spreading the word. You know about the new format from Samsung and Google, right? Mm -hmm. We'll see about I've, that. But uh, I mean, the bad part, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, the bad part is the fact that too many formats is not good for any of them. 
No, I agree. I think, I think it's going to come down to, um, reliability, right? So like, yeah. Okay. So, so Google and Samsung have their format now, you know, they're all competing in this phone race. And at the end of it, if you, if you boil it all down to like where these freaking things compete the most, Apple, iPhone competition, Google Pixel, Samsung Galaxy, these guys are all in this area. So they feel like, in my opinion, any type of technology Apple's got, we have to have some sort of alternative to it. You know, Google and Samsung teaming up in this world is like cool, but at the same time, I don't know. Android never really caught on. Yeah. You know, it, it's cool. You can have it. You got some people that listen to it and swear by it, but iPhone's still king. You know, if Apple's behind it, I still have to say I would stick with the with with Apple. And especially Dolby's been around for years. The music thing is relatively new, right? You know, Dolby has tried and true made our movie theater experiences like incredible. And I don't see anybody complaining about that or looking for like a new way to listen or you know what I mean? It's always just been like, whoa. Like I remember seeing Oppenheimer in films and I was like, whoa. The things and this is like the double the piece when you're like an audio engineer, you get to like uh, like feel like what's going on where everyone else is just like glued. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, right. But yeah, I mean, Dolby's just they're 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 trusted, you know. It people it takes a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot for people to say. I'm going to stop trusting the people that have been doing it the like well for these years and completely make a switch and completely like, you know, for me, like that would be, that would be a really tough sell. You know, I'd have to have somebody convince me that it's way better. On the other hand, if you had an artist that came to you and said, money's no object, can you do it like this? Then you'd probably do it, right? I would start with a conversation first. <laughs> I would say, why? Yeah. I'd say why, and I'd want to be convinced because listen, if they said money's no object, I'll buy you a studio with Sony 360, yeah, and, yeah. and we'll put you in it, and you're gonna just mix Sony Sony three rec Sony 360 records. I'd be like, hmm, let me entertain this, but still, why? Why the hell are you doing this? Why are you spending this money on on me to do that? You know, um, and if I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced. You know, it, for me, the Atmos thing was sitting in the room that first time, and being like, whoa, speakers wow the cabinets really feel good i was still wasn't like fully convinced on the headphone thing but like things have been improving you know the spatial um algorithm change has changed since then i don't know how because it's always under wraps but it feels better to me yeah uh, now than it ever has and now you have also sonos systems like i have um those sonos era 300s i have a pair right here on on top of my uh speakers and um those support Dolby Atmos. I don't know if they support Sony 360, but like that's another heavy hitter brand right there. That's you know, on the on the Dolby side. Yeah, well, you figure that the Sony hardware is going to support the Sony 360, and Samsung hardware is going to support their format as well. But even so, Dolby has a huge jump out in front. So we'll see. Yeah. All right, Nick. Uh, last question. What's the best piece of advice that you've received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? I would say I got to give this one. This is something I, I say to people all the time. It, it, it could piss you off or it could, uh, it could really, um, or it could be like, duh, come on, man. But I was really young once. I was raking leaves at uh, my grandfather's house, right? I did a shit job. You know, I raked, I half-assed it. And I... You know, wiped my hands, said, I'm done. I walked inside 
And he looked at me and he looked at where the leaves were supposed to be raked and he handed me the rake back and he said, listen, Nick, if you do something right, you only have to do it once. And that to me was like immediate, just like, whoa, because I'm, I'm like, yeah, all right. So I like tried to half-ass it. I tried to cut a corner. I tried to get around something, but if you don't cut those corners and you just go full force and you don't like send out a mix before you roll the vocal or like, you know, all those little things that, that you don't think really matter, they do, they count, you know, they, it always counts and it will all the time, it'll come back tenfold and reward you. So that's, that's my little piece of advice from, I don't know, 10 year old me raking leaves in my grandfather's backyard. Every time I'm, it's late or it's like, I want to be done with something or I want to cut that corner, that moment comes back to my head every time, you know, and I'm, I'm 30 on the dot now. So it's been 20 years of just that. And I think that mentality, that kind of drive and that kind of attention to detail, I can't say it's stemmed only from that experience, but damn, that's an easy thick cornerstone to like point back at and say, that was when I learned that lesson. You can find out more about squids at mixedbysquids.com. That's mixedbysquids, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.